Welcome to Building the Future, hosted by Kevin Horick. With millions of listeners a month, Building the Future has quickly become one of the fastest rising programs with a focus on interviewing startups, entrepreneurs, investors, CEOs, and more. The radio and TV show airs in 15 markets across the globe, including Silicon Valley. For full showtimes, past episodes, or to sponsor the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Today's show is brought to you by OnPay, the new standard in payroll. You can pay employees and contractors in minutes, automate your payroll taxes and filings, as well as provide health benefits and HR in all 50 states. For more information, visit buildingthefutureshow.com slash onpay. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Jim Franklin. He's a director, advisor, and investor. Jim, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. Selfishly, I think I've used a bunch of the products that you've been involved in throughout your career. But maybe before we get into all that stuff, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. You bet. Uh, I was born in Iowa, raised in Pennsylvania. Okay. Uh, went to school at the College of William and Mary in Virginia. Okay. Where I studied accounting as an undergrad. What made you want uh, to take a really that? Good accounting program. Well, it's a very good program, and the way that um, just like you climb tall mountains because they're there. It's like <clears throat> this is one of the best accounting programs in the country, and it's uh, by reputation very hard, and doing hard things is fun. Uh, and so I, I did that, but with no real intention of being an accountant, uh, especially after I learned about it. Uh, but I did pass the CPA exam, and I continued to William Mary and went to law school. And I didn't really want to be a lawyer either, but I thought I would balance out all that accounting with some reading and writing. And I got to law school and hated it. And so I cross-applied to the MBA program, uh, and I did a JD MBA. And there's an MBA program, I found my people. And I really liked uh, the sort of the combination of sort of math and business, sort of a quantitative orientation, but in a business, uh, in a business context. And it was in that MBA program that I learned about venture capital. And I like chaos and uncertainty, and I did not want to have a boring life or a predictable future. And so I sort of packed up my bags when I got out of school and moved to Boulder, Colorado. Uh, I also had found a triathlon, a bit of a dabbler. Uh, so it's the swim, bike, run thing. And I, I could mix triathlon and venture capital to intersect in Boulder. Uh, and so I came out here to get to where I live now in Boulder, Colorado, uh, to be involved in the venture capital community and make a life for myself and pursue triathlon uh, as an amateur. Um, and that's how I got uh, involved in the, uh, the venture back community, uh, but not as a VC. Uh, that was back in 1992, which seems like ancient history, but back then there were just sort of partners and that was it. Uh, and very, very few firms. But there's no real concept of associates and principals and all the structure we have today. Uh, and so I couldn't just walk in the door out of school and become a VC. So I ended up being on the management side of venture-backed companies. Uh, at one point, I was a founder of a venture-backed company. But most of my career, I was a CFO or VP sales or a CEO or the general counsel of a business that might have been, you know, four to 25 people. Uh, but, you know, about to raise venture money or I'd help them raise venture money and then scaling that up to 
you know, hundred people or 200 or more people like in the case of SendGrid and really bringing some of that uh, business perspective and really a, a people perspective uh, to the startup. Because oftentimes the founders bring the, the product uh, perspective and the, you know, the product market. Uh, and then there's all that other stuff that has to uh, happen to make that product vision a reality, mostly around financing, raising money and hiring people uh, effectively. Interesting. So I just want to step back for a second. What made you move to Boulder? Well, living in Virginia and training for triathlon sort of full time uh, while going to graduate school, um, I didn't really fit in too well. Uh, okay. In Virginia, people on Sundays go to church and you know, watch football, and that's not my thing. And so I like you know, running and riding and swimming. <laughs> so you come to Boulder, sure. you know. People do a lot of swim, bike, run, and other other things, and you know. So uh, I kind of found my people uh, here, and just uh, you know, it's uh, you just see things. Um, and I remember the cover of a J. Crew catalog uh, when I was still living in Virginia. I had a picture of an old Land Cruiser with Colorado plates on it, like up in the mountains. And I had an old Land Cruiser. And I'm like, I need to have Colorado plates on my Land Cruiser. No, that's <laughs> cool, man. That's just uh, I was like, it was a yeah, green and white Land Cruiser. Yeah. Colorado plates are green and white. I'm like, that would just be really cool. And again, I didn't want to get a job in D.C. I interviewed like, in the D.C. area for like tax lawyer positions and this kind of thing. And I just thought, man, if I got one of these jobs, I would wake up 20 years later and just be really, really unhappy. And uh, so I just sort of you know, made a big left turn and came out to Boulder uh, with that old Land Cruiser and triathlon bike and little laptop and uh, basically started networking. Uh, I'd interviewed at Cooper's and Librand uh, on the East Coast you know, for a job in Denver. And uh, the way Cooper's is organized, you, know, you don't organize, you, they're organized geog by geography. So I couldn't interview in D.C. for a job in Denver because you have to go to Denver first. Uh, uh, okay. And so I was like, oh, I'm move out. And so I moved out there and I knew this uh, one person and he introduced me to Rocky's Venture Club. Uh, and Rocky's Venture Club had been around since the mid-80s. Uh, putting on like monthly pitch events and content for startups. And the people at Rocky sort of grabbed me and said, hey, we're going to put you to work uh, as a volunteer. Because they recognized that I had something to give. I think that's an important lesson, that everyone has something to give to the ecosystem. And if you're, in my case, 26, out of school, you know, just don't know anything about anything other than academic stuff, uh, but I had my time. And so I could be on the membership committee and I could call first-time attendees and say, thanks for coming, you know, come again next month. Or I could call, you know, our members, our sponsors. You call the lawyers and accountants uh, and the bankers and say, hey, would you, you know, re-up your sponsorship for next year? Uh, I could call all the VCs and say, hey, would you come and be on uh, one of our panels on a, uh, on a, a, for, you know, how to raise money in these times and those sorts of panels. And so I really got to be well, super well connected into the venture capital community. And so everybody knew who I was and how I operated and it's those fundamentals, right? Showing up on time, saying please and thank you, just following through on the stuff you do. And it made it easier for me to get sort of drafted onto, uh, onto teams uh, when you're a, you're, a, you're a known quantity and you're known to be just you know, generally helpful. And then creating a you know, large network became very powerful uh, over the years. Like when you need to recruit people. Sure. Uh, when I was a founder, we raised $5 million as a Series A, which back then was your first raise. You know, we did talk about seeds and pre-seeds and all that stuff. Um, but we hired 55 people in, you know, 30, 60 days or something. Wow. So they had sort of attracted a tribe of people who said, oh, yeah, I'd love to work with you, right? If you're funded, you know, I need, to, I need a job, I need a paycheck. I can't just go 
you know, start a company with you, but uh, I found two co-founders where we could go start a company. And when we got that uh, check, it was just easy to say, okay, boom, we're funded, let's go. And just stand up all the departments and, uh, and get after it. Very it sort cool. of didn't work, but, uh, you know, uh, it's a journey, right? There's uh, many chapters uh, in that journey. We went through that money in about five quarters wow. and weren't able to raise uh, any uh, Series B. Uh, we could do a podcast another time on uh, yeah managing in a down market. As we had raised money in an up market, but the world changed on us just as we were closing that financing. <laughs> and so we had raised money in an up market, had to manage that money in a down market, uh, which was a quite a different, difficult transition. And I think we just went through that now in March and April. Is that people have raised a lot of money uh, now, and now they'll be operating in a very different world than they raised their money in. No, I, I, I would love to have that longer discussion with you because it, yeah it's very very timely but walk us through some of your other career because you've been at oracle obviously you were the ceo of sengrid can you can you talk about some of that and your experience uh at those companies you bet i think my uh my first breakthrough was uh I, you know, the first job i got was called sfm uh shit for money uh <laughs> i was doing a job in denver uh basically for a wealthy individual uh, who owned a bunch of businesses that weren't tech companies and they were barely legal. And that was helping okay. keeping him just inside of the law. So that's not a good job, but I, <laughs> it gave me enough money to pay the rent and I could do all my venture capital, you know, volunteering stuff was sort of my main thing. So I would spend, I don't know how many hours a week, but it was like 12 bucks. It was to all my friends were, it was just, it was my network. I just moved. I didn't know anybody. So I just, I just leaned into it heavily. And so I did the SFM job for two years while I was at like the Uber volunteer at Rockies. Uh, and then, you know, one night at a bar late at night, uh, a guy who started a company with 300 grand, spent it, you know, lost it, racked up some debt uh, and kind of crashed his company, was going to restart the company uh, with the best product person, the best salesperson and him as the founder. But he needed a fourth sort of co-founder of restarting this business who had some financial skills some legal skills and just could, you know, generally hustle. And so I would join that team in the restart um, and... Uh, I was the CFO and GC, uh, and that was decisioneering, makers of crystal ball software, uh, which says Monte Carlo simulations in Excel. At any rate, that business, we ended up growing uh, uh, profitably for a, a number of years. And it was really uh, my favorite business because the intensity of sort of growing your first company uh, is hard to replicate. And uh, doing it uh, without venture capital, but doing it on sales uh, was just tremendous discipline. Uh, and that was um, you know, very uh, rewarding. That business, uh, I had uh, was CFO and then I became the VP of sales. Uh, they offered me the CEO job, uh, but I had to commit to stay for a year. And I was starting a company on the side. Okay. <laughs> I've been doing one business for four or five years and uh, it was back in the first bubble. Everyone had their you know, startup, and I'd rather be a founder than than a, an executive at a company. And so, uh, when I said I couldn't stay for a year, they fired me on the spot, and I was like, "Shit!" Wow. Uh, and so, yeah. And I'm like, "All right, so now I'm a founder." Uh, and after we raised the five million bucks, and I was able to, you know, hire a bunch of people, including for my previous employer, which they weren't super happy about. But you know, we get over that stuff. Um, but yeah, then I. Uh, I had my own company again i was the cfo and founder but really had two co-founders who ran it like a partnership uh we did online baby photos uh, it's called web families okay. um we had a partnership with the uh, hospital corporation of america which really launched the business because we were able to 
uh, lock up their 100 hospitals on day zero before we even incorporate it. Wow. And really having HCA commit to use our solution if we build it was how we got the money. Uh, because they, we wouldn't get the money if we didn't have HCA you know, on the phone saying, yeah, yeah, you know, give these guys the money and we'll use this system-wide, which is a million moms in the U.S. go through HCA hospitals every year. And that was our sort of install base. But economics didn't work. You know, the world changed on us. We couldn't raise the Series B. Uh, and so when that company crashed, I uh, you know, volunteered to do a neat windup. And again, being a lawyer and accountant, uh, we didn't crash unexpectedly. We crashed you know, very neatly. Uh, I really brought the business down to zero cash on exactly the day I said I would. And, and I told the board, I said, hey, I could use like 30 grand to pay a few people to, you know, do some fast tax returns. And you just need some, you know, some muscle, frankly, to move some equipment around and do an asset sale and all that stuff. And, yeah, they gave me the 30 grand, you know, no problem. And, uh, you know, I paid some people to wind things up. And then the VC said, you know, hey, I, I felt bad I lost all the money. But they're like, hey, look, we just gave $2.5 million to the security company down the road. You know, why don't you go down there and do your thing down there? And I said, well, I need a job, so okay. And then I said, what's my thing again? He said, you know the people and spreadsheets and stuff. <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah, that, that, I'll do that. <laughs> so, you know, I, was the, I was the CFO at a company called Verisept, uh, a security software company, which had a really terrific product founder, but really no management around in any kind of business processes. So we ended up uh, raising quite a bit of money uh, there as well, 5 to $20 million dollars. Um, and brought in a CEO over the course of a couple of years. And when you bring in a CEO, they like to have their own CFO. So I got fired from that company too, which was interesting. The time wasn't too happy. Uh, the CEO says, Hey, you're out. I'm bringing my own guy in. I'm like, ah, but as luck would have it, uh, the people who fired me three years before, uh, they hired me back as CEO to run the first company, the crystal wall business. Interesting. And so, that was very, very uh, happy to be a CEO. And I think that's where I've had some conflict, uh, like with the, when I got fired the second time uh, uh, there at Verisept, is I, I acted like I was the CEO, but I wasn't. I was the number two guy, but I wanted to be the number one guy. Uh, I think it's important to have a personal mission statement. And for me, when I came to Colorado, it was like I wanted to be uh, the CEO of a venture-backed company in Boulder, Colorado. And so it's like, you kind of break that down, right? You want to be a CEO. Okay, what does that take? You want to be in Boulder. What does that take? You want to be behind a venture-backed company. What does that take? And so I got super networked into the VC world. Uh, I moved to Boulder, right? And so uh, it's an expensive place to live. I just tell people, you just got to learn how to live in half the house, right? <laughs> don't, don't buy as much. <laughs> and, uh, and it's like, how do you become a CEO? And uh, I had some good coaching on that um, from a guy who said there's, like three parts of the business. There's the build it, there's the sell it, there's the pay for it. And so you need to be dangerous in two of those three disciplines uh, to be the CEO. And I was good at the, the pay for it part. And so then I had you know, some experience then as a VP sale. So, but I'm so, um, you know, I ended up getting that, that nod then to be CEO uh, of a company. Again, I, and I knew the market, uh, knew the product really well. I knew a fair amount of the employees there for my first tour of duty. Uh, and that that was the company then that uh, we ended up growing the second time, uh, and then uh, sold it to Oracle okay. uh, in 07. Very cool. Uh, and so we actually sold it to Hyperion just as Hyperion was rolling into Oracle. Been lots of stories around how to sell a company and why being like you know as a lawyer and accountant, we ran our company due diligence ready like all the time. Uh, and smart. When it was time to sell, we were able to sell fast and easy 
from the buyer's point of view, which is super important uh, because Godfrey Sullivan was running Hyperion. When we kind of came along, again, through a connection I met through all this networking I've done, uh, and that turned out to be a neighbor of mine. Uh, met him at Jackson Hole at a VC boondoggle. It turns out we live on the same street in Boulder. Wow. And uh, he knew Godfrey well. He says, if you want to meet Godfrey, let me know. And so, you know, six months later, I said, sure, I'd like to meet Godfrey. <laughs> it took <laughs> six months later to get the meeting. And then, uh, but I had a you know, good chat with Godfrey and essentially sold the business on that first first meeting. We had a good cultural uh, alignment, um, somewhat known for this uh, cultural system called 4-H, uh, Honest, Hungry, Humble, and Happy. Uh, it was a system I came up with the second time I was fired to figure out how to avoid unhelpful conflict. And by having values alignment, understanding where you do have conflict with people, we call it a hiring system. Um, anyway, Hyperion had a very similar approach to our 4-H people. So Godfrey looked at our you know, 80 employees and thought, oh, you're just a natural snap into Hyperion. Uh, and when you looked at all the legal accounting, rev rec, all that stuff, we were super clean, cap table and whatnot. We actually were paying dividends to people. And your cap table's got to be tight when you're writing checks against your cap sure. table uh, to people. And so uh, what was interesting was that Godfrey was selling Hyperion to Oracle at the same time he was buying our business. Wow. And so I asked him, you know, after all this was done, I said, why did you buy our business? And uh, he's like, well, one reason uh, he could solve our shareholder problem, which I, I won't go into too much, but our, our crystal ball shareholders did not have that 4-H consistency. And so we had it at the operating level of the business, but not, not at the board level. And so that created a lot of friction. And so Godfrey could solve that for me by giving me a 4-H home for the business. And frankly, we were easy. He's like, you were just really easy to digest. So it wasn't a big deal for me you know, to have my court dev people do their thing and wrap you guys in just as we were wrapping ourselves up and, and, and selling to Oracle. So literally, I had no idea that we were about to become part of Oracle. Uh, it was, in fact, when I told my employees that Hyperion bought us, uh, and I said, you know, hey, Hyperion's like super nice company, just like us, 4-H, one of the H's is humble. Um, and the employees were pretty concerned. And I said, well, it's not like we sold ourselves to Oracle. <laughs> I said that. <laughs> because Oracle's reputation is certainly not about humility. And so when I'm driving to work on a 29th day after our first acquisition, and I hear that on the radio, right, Oracle fought Hyperion. I thought, oh, man. I'm That's hilarious. About Oracle. Yeah, and so I went in front of the employees that morning. I did all hands, and I said, I just said, so how about that? <laughs> and, uh, and the employees were like, what should we expect? And I said, I don't know, but we'll all find out together. And, uh, and 100% of our employees came across the transition with uh, Hyperion, and then they all went into Oracle. And, and some people have stayed, you know, 10 plus years and had a great experience. Uh, I stayed for just short of four years, uh, but they'd never worked for a big company. I want to make sure everyone had a good landing and transition. I want to make sure our customers, I mean, a lot of key partners that uh, had helped us be successful and make sure they were integrated into the Oracle machinery. Uh, and that all took a lot of time, uh, time and work. And frankly, Oracle paid you an insane amount of money just for your day job. Uh, what would pass for an exit, you know, check in startup land is what Oracle, you know, calls a paycheck or your you know, annual bonus check or something like wow. that. And so it was nice after, you know, working for 15 years for, you know, very uh, high accountability, low dollar jobs, cash jobs anyway, uh, to be in a situation where you had a, a high dollar, but, you know, low accountability. You work on a big company 
you know, it's not the same level of rigor and urgency uh, as a business that, you know, needs to make payroll on Friday. Uh, And so that, that was, that was, that was nice. Uh, Although frankly, I think uh, my advice to your audience would be is to maybe not quite stay that long Uh, at three and a half years. uh, You get a little soft and it was hard to go back. You make enough money, you can't really retire uh, at least not in the lifestyle to which you become accustomed, but you can be very choosy about who you work with. You know, having, you know, several years worth of cash on hand, it's like, Oh, that's nice. Um, and so in, uh, September, 2010, I, uh, I quit Oracle sort of bummed in my own, you know, hang time that knew a lot of people around Colorado that, you know, skied a hundred days or done these things. I never did that. I was busy with these startups <laughs> that, uh, I will help startups because I always did this no matter what my day job was. I probably spent 30 to 40% of my time in the ecosystem, just, you know, doing things and trying to be helpful. And whether that was when I was at Oracle or other places at Oracle, we would, you know, we would use everybody's stuff. I had the control over checkbooks. And so we could sponsor things and, you know, we could buy your stock. That's what big companies need to do to support startups, right? Is give them a purchase order, right? Put Oracle on their logo chart. So when they go to raise money, they say, well, companies like Oracle, are you relying on us to do you know, our analytics or whatever it is? And so there's a lot of the interplay there. Uh, anyway, so when I was uh, out of Oracle and sort of looking for what I was going to do next in life, uh, I'd known Brad Feld a long time, the famous investor from Boulder that's uh, now Foundry Group uh, and Mobius before that. And uh, well, I talked to a lot of people, and I said, you know, Brad, people say I'm retired. I'm not really retired. He goes, oh, no, no, you're on sabbatical. He goes, just take a year, you know, and get detached from, you know, all the crystal ball stuff you've done for so long. And, uh yeah, we'll find something fun to do when you want to get, you know, back into an operating, operating role. I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's it, sabbatical. Well, then a month later, Brad calls and says, forget what I told you. <laughs> what am I going to do for you? And that, and that was Sengrid. And, uh, you know, Sengrid is just, uh, if, it, if it's not a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, it's probably once-in-a-decade opportunity where the business had just tremendous product market fit. And, frankly, I had never felt product market fit, and I haven't since or seen it <laughs> as an investor uh, the way it was at Sanger. It's just that sense of, of like you're getting pulled in the market rather than pushing. Like, you know, at Oracle is all about push, right? Enterprise sales and, you know, we're going to sell the, our stuff in our terms and our time frame, and boom. And, uh, you know, Sanger, it was all bought. Nothing was sold. You know, it, was not, it, wasn't, it wasn't sold to anybody. It was just uh, developers talking to developers about there's a better way to do uh, email for your cloud-based applications. And uh, millennial developers, none of them want to do email. Just zero friction to outsource with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, just let Stringer take care of it. And so, yeah, it was about a year and a half old, 25 people, five million bucks raised from Brad. Uh, and the founders are fantastic people, but being product oriented founders, they'd never spent five million dollars before. Uh, and I'd had that their life experience a couple of times, uh, you know, once uh, unsuccessfully, you know, unsuccessfully. And it's like, oh, well there's some things you need to do. And really with SendGrid is when Amazon came out with their simple email service, this sort of filled hole that SendGrid was designed to solve, that things got tricky. And so I joined a month after the Amazon announcement. And a lot of the CEO types around town were like, Jim, why would you take that job? Amazon's going to kill him. (laughs) And (laughs) it was the very first day at SendGrid with the employees. And there was a chart getting passed around that had, you know, showed SendGrid pricing and Amazon pricing. And Amazon was much lower. 
and you know that's what we're gonna say. Oh, it's gonna kill SendGrid. And so at the that first all hands meeting, I said to people, I'm like, a lot of people said, you know, like Jim, why are you taking this job, right? Like you get crushed. And I said, look at this chart. And I did my little happy dance and I'm not a good dancer, but you know, it got the point across. Like I was excited. I'm like, why are you excited? I'm like, who's on this chart? Amazon and SendGrid, right? It's like, they just made our company, right? It's like, Interesting. It was a, and in fact, it was a huge accelerant uh, to the business because all the other cloud providers, uh, Rackspace and software and whatnot, they all needed a checkbox solution to compete against Amazon. And so we rather rapidly signed up every other cloud provider, you know, IBM, Bluemix, Google, whatever, uh, Microsoft, Azure, uh, and we became the infrastructure for all the cloud providers that weren't fighting against Amazon. Uh, so that uh, that's how we ended the SendGrid. SendGrid grew, uh, it seemed to grow super fast from uh, a million to almost 50 million of ARR in three and a half years I was there. And we scaled uh, from the 25 people to 250 people, wow. offices all over the place. And uh, that was that was a lot of fun. It, it was the same uh, management process I'd really developed um, 12 years earlier uh, back at the Crystal Ball business. I first became a CEO about just how you run a company and do management meetings and one-on-ones and uh, this sort of thing. So while all these companies I've been talking about are very different, you know, email infrastructure and security and math software and baby photos, the process uh, is exactly the same. Uh, and actually a fair number of the players are the same, uh, the general counsel or CFO and some people I've worked with, you know, we, we kind of go from business to business and we do the same process uh, around how do you manage a venture back company? And so you sort of come up with a, our own sort of professional management approach of venture back companies from, how you manage a board or the annual planning cycle or doing offsites and um, all these things. And so now um, that I've been out of SendGrid six years, and after uh, my departures, it grew and it's going to be worth billions of dollars, which is not my wheelhouse of understanding companies of that scale, much less IPO and, and whatnot. Uh, but another, we brought in another CEO and hired their team and, uh, they took it on to be a public company with about a billion dollar valuation. Wow. And then Twilio, who was one of our early partners, we were basically just drafting the Twilio uh, B2D go to market model. Um, they ended up buying the company for $3 billion. So that was fantastic financially. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, now I am on the, you know, on that other end of things uh, where I'm a uh, limited partner uh, in a number of the funds around town especially new funds, first-time GPs, uh, and a uh, board member uh, for a number of companies. Again, Brad Feld said I could be on 13 boards and still feel retired and unemployed. Uh, that is not <laughs> correct. <laughs> Maybe Brad could do that. <laughs> I got onto eight boards, and I felt very busy. I'm like, this is Oracle with no paycheck. Like, hmm, that's not the trade I want. And so now I'm on like three or four boards, and uh, that's just enough. It keeps you in the mix of you know, CEOs and CFOs and VP sales and uh, and, and whatnot about uh, you know, raising money and just the challenges of an operating company. And I try to be that independent board member who uh, can remember what it was like to be an operator, but also appreciate. And I like VCs, right? I think uh, VCs have you know financed the ecosystem that has been my uh, has been my career, uh, and so I try to be in that middle here. Or if it's time to replace a CEO, I've been replaced, right? Again. I know how that works, right? And I know how it feels, probably more importantly. And you know, when it's time to you know 
exit a founder, right? That has to happen too from time to time. Uh, and just helping people work through that. I think the, uh, and now I'm uh, an instructor. So I'll be teaching a venture capital course at the University of Colorado's MBA program this fall. Oh, and uh, that sort great. of brings us all back to the circle uh, from when I got my MBA and learned about venture capital uh, and how little I knew <laughs> what, I, what I thought venture capital was versus the reality. Uh, there's so many things and so much opportunity for so many people to be involved, uh, regardless of race and gender and, and these things. Uh, and you don't have to be a, you know, a CFO or be a venture capitalist, but there's a lot of ways to have a great life and career as a, a founder or early executive or a regional manager, enterprise sales rep or customer success person or handling support. Or, you know, just there's so many roles you can have a, a meaningful, interesting career while uh, you know, having a venture back company. And you have, you have some options literally on uh, you know, life-changing wealth sort of on that back end while you're making a dent in the world with the mission, mission of your business. So I'll just close this segment here with this concept of uh, pay 10%. So I think when you're a post-exited founder, uh, I think what is good for you and the ecosystem is to pay 10% of your net proceeds, whatever you, know, you made from your exit, and put it back in the ecosystem, whether through uh, straight up uh, sponsorships of new things. People are always trying to start new um, organizations and whatnot, and they need that initial capital. Right. Uh, when I was at SendGrid, we put in the first check for 20K to uh, Denver Startup Week, which okay, has gone down cool. to be a very large event. Um, but you can do those sorts of things personally with the smaller uh, events and things around. Uh, there's also direct angel investing. Write that first check to a startup. Uh, it doesn't have to be a check, but being the first check, it changes their pitch. It changes their confidence. Uh, I wrote the first check to Parkify on a Monday. Wow. So on Tuesday, they could pitch at a, in a seed angel forum and say, we raised our first money. It's from Jim. And they got some more money on Tuesday. And then, you know, on Thursday, I knew they had a meeting with the VC, which I thought was going to go well, right? And I was kind of front-running the VCs. And we ended up raising about a million, too, over the course of the next sort of eight days. Wow. Um, but, and this was SendGrid alumni. Uh, some people out of the engineering group are starting a new company. And so I think investing in sort of your alumni when you're a CEO, it's uh, just if you're a university president, right? You want to see your graduates do well in life. And if you can help them with some seed capital, that's good. That I call philanthropic angel investing. So if you have, you know, straight up sponsorships, just give money away. And then you have philanthropic angel investing. Well, you get a security back, but you don't really expect an economic return because it's just, you know, very uncertain. Uh, but I think the third bucket and the pay at 10% forward is around being a limited partner. Uh, that way you can maintain lots of flexibility in your personal life. You don't have any meetings and all that stuff, uh, but you can be an LP to either the fund that backed you. Uh, that, that's an obvious one. But I think being an LP, like in a first time uh, GP, so someone who is you know, stepping out to be that general partner, you know, raising LP money is super tough. And so if you can help, you know, spark some interest and motivation around, around that, uh, that has a real uh, multiplier effect uh, as that, you know, GP can go and uh, put that money to work. And they'll do that hard work of meeting all those startups and leading the term sheet and dealing with the lawyers, all that stuff. Uh, and you can uh, be hopeful as an LP by helping them, you know, vet a few things or whatever. But uh, I think it's really like being a board member. You want to be helpful but not intrusive uh, and encourage them on their uh, journey uh, as the next generation of VCs uh, comes forward. No, I, actually, I, I think that's, that's actually a very cool approach to 
investing because so many, it's like the most, I think it's a, it makes no sense to me when investors say I'm early stage, but the company needs to be generating tens of thousands of dollars a month in revenue. It's like, to me, that's not really early stage. It's like, what, like, what are you talking about? It's like, so I find that's actually really quite interesting. So do you ever put money into companies where you don't know the founders or you haven't worked with the founders or what are your thoughts on, on that? Because if you're, you're giving ten, twenty thousand dollars away to these companies. Like, how do you validate the people that you don't know or haven't worked for before? Yeah. So usually, uh, uh, so my wife and I, we, we use the phrase. Uh, here's how we say no. We say, we say, well, we, you know, we do direct investing people we do a battle with. Um, so when I was a CFO and got fired a long time ago, uh, the, the VP of sales same company also got fired by the same guy. Okay. <laughs> In a certain fraternity, we felt like, damn, right. And so uh, and I always thought that guy should be a CEO. So I backed him, you know, kind of, you know, like, whatever you want to do, I'm in. What are we going to go do? Right. Uh, but you're right. So we've done some other investing. Um, one was uh, stream.io, which yep. is uh, chat and feeds of service. Again, kind of on that business developer. So we like the market. And we understand it from the Sengrid days. And, uh, we, uh, again, geography is a big part. So uh, stream is, was started in Amsterdam. Uh, but the founder's wife has a job with Crocs the okay. shoe company here in boulder and so he moved to boulder but he also had gone through the new york tech stars program wow. and we're very close to tech stars with singard uh having been the you know biggest win out of that ecosystem i was um carried their flag there quite a lot um and so that was good and then uh we're part of a boulder angel group set up here in town by john ives and john's role is really about uh sort of the legal and deal stuff and so, you know, if John's in the deal, you don't have to worry about the legal and the deal stuff. It's absolutely his thing. And John had brought this other guy in, Judd. Uh, Judd was the founder of Ganip, and he is very technical, and he's also very particular. And so if Judd likes something, you know, like, oh, the product must be pretty solid, right? So yeah, that's good. And so when we, when we met the stream people, we could kind of check the box on the deal with John. We check the box on the product with uh, with Judd, and then you know, my wife and I are like, okay, we're going to focus on like the market, which we understand from the uh, same good experience, and then you know, then around the, really the team. So the 4-H uh, culture perspective uh, uh, developed way back with decision hearing and then scaled at SendGrid, you know, kind of applies the same way. And so we can do like a 4-H interview on someone pretty efficiently uh, to get a sense for is this the kind of person we'd like to have you know in our lives and that we want to be helpful to and, and work with. Uh, you know, even as a distance, as a, a limited partner, or even a streamer, direct MLPs in that one. And, uh, yeah, this guy, uh, Terry, that runs it is just fantastic. And so that's how you get comfortable with someone like that. The other company here in town is Section.io, uh, and they do sort of edge computing as a service, uh, which I can hardly explain. I was on their board two years. Uh, but, they, uh, you know, it's, it's hardcore developer stuff, you know, by developers for developers. Uh, to make uh, e-commerce sites and things run you know, better, faster, cheaper. And again, really like the team. They're from Australia, from Sydney, and they had built up a business, mostly ProServe, and they want to convert it to a product business, and they want to pick where in the world would be the best place to scale that business. And they did their homework, and they thought, Boulder, we want to come to Boulder and scale our business. And so they visited over a period of you know nine months before their, their move. We got to know people like John Ives and us and we're like, oh, okay, so they're going to commit to our community 
and move their company here. So like, we want to commit back to them. Uh, and so John, I actually coordinated this first round. We put in probably 800,000 wow. uh, between John has a little fund and, and some people write some bigger checks, like a couple hundred K checks um, to get that, you know, that initial raise done. And then they went through the Boulder tech stars program, right. To really sort of indoctrinate them and help them adopt a, uh, a U.S. network. Uh, so it was that combination of, the, you know, they did their homework, you know, they really made a big commitment to our ecosystem. Um, the, just the team had that hustler hacker dynamic where the hacker person uh, uh, was very credible, uh, again, by having him meet the judge of the world, the other sort of strong hacker types around town. And then the business person, I can do that kind of vetting and like, oh, this is a sharp person. Uh, it's nice to see that they have that, uh, have that. Uh, duality. And so that's how we can get comfortable with doing direct investing and then actually join the board uh, to represent this investor group that we put together. Um, because that's uh, when you're raising money, you might not know this, that you know, that's what you're really asking from the investor. It's not the check. Uh, it's you, you're taking up a deal slot because any investor only has so much sort of mental headspace that they can allocate towards deals. And so uh, you know, if they say yes to your thing, it means you're saying no to all that other stuff they see. And that's that's tricky. So they put in a section deal together, all those other investors are like, you know, they don't want to go on the board. They're like, hey, Jim, you're not busy. You do it. <laughs> and so I felt like, oh, that's the way I can contribute. I certainly didn't write as big a check as some other people did. Uh, and so I can use my time and, and be on the board with the two founders and kind of help them through their, uh, you know, first you know years of transition from a services business to a product business. Uh, and then Brad's fund uh, came in and did a, a nice Series A uh, round with uh, Ryan uh, McIntyre leading it. And uh, then Ryan took over the board seat. Uh, and so now that's a foundry-backed company that we're, we're investors in, and you know, they're off to the races. Interesting. So that's ways you can get comfortable with people that you haven't known or worked with um, you know, when, they, when they do their homework. There's some other ones that are just more thematic. Um, when you're an LP in a fund, uh, then when companies start to break out and do well and do subsequent rounds, then we create an you know, SPV, a special purpose vehicle, just a standalone entity uh, to, to do that, to do follow-on investing. And so we ended up investing in um, uh, some companies we don't know as well through the SPVs. Interesting. The one thing that you keep mentioning throughout this show, if people haven't picked up on it yet, is it seems like, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is everything you've ever done is basically built through networking and relationships. Is that fair to say? That is absolutely fair to say. Like, I think one thing I learned in my MBA program is that business is about people. And you get to, when we had a uh, second year course taught by a PhD in Shakespearean literature, <laughs> and we just did watch movies like Do the Right Thing and Lawrence Arabia. And, and like, <laughs> you get the people part right. I think that's the whole 4-H system and, being clear on how you pick, you know, vendors and customers and shareholders, right. And co-founders and employees and, uh, and just that whole, that thing. And you get that part, right. And then business is always challenging. That's why it's exciting and fun and creative. Uh, but by having those people in the room that have that, uh, fundamental values consistency, it allows you to then argue about business stuff, you know, very forcefully, uh, and not be arguing about, uh, other things. Interesting. So I'll give a quick example. Yeah. Uh, one outcome of 4-H culture is we, we round in employees' favor. And so if everyone on the management team agrees that 
you know, we round in the employee's favor, that rule comes up a lot about sales compensation or just benefits and all this stuff is that we're not trying to frag our own team, right? We think our employees, especially frontline employees, they're the ones creating a lot of value every day, you know, doing the support tickets, doing the sales calls, setting the, you know, just all that work that he's done. And so we want to round in their favor and it just makes it easy. And if you extend that to round in your customer's favor, that also makes a lot of decisions very easy. If you don't share that sort of orientation of plenty versus scarcity, yep. uh, we wrap that up in the happy value in 4-H is that happy people have an orientation of, uh, of plenty. There's, there's plenty to go around. I don't need to hold on to mine or take what's in the middle so you don't get any. Uh, or you definitely meet people in life who have an orientation of scarcity yep. and they feel like, wow, I need to really hold on to my stuff. And there's anything in the middle, I'll grab it you know, before it's gone. You know, who, all those people buying toilet paper the last couple of months. Like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, you know. Interesting. Yeah, that, that's uh, yeah. So hopefully, four H people went out raiding the shelves at Target. Um, it's like there's plenty. You know, you'll be okay. Uh, supply chains sort out, right? Um, but it just it solves a lot of problems. Uh, and so we had very little conflict at Sengrid in particular. I think we had a pretty thoroughly deployed system where our CFO changed our billing system, and there's a lot of complexities in changing a billing system that's on a you know this plan or that plan and when we changed it the customers were all concerned that we were trying to screw them and whenever they called in the support and they drilled into their bill and they saw what we did they realized we were actually at every turn rounding in their favor we were lowering our revenue and giving them more credit every decision and it was super simple because whether you're the cfo or head of support or you're a support rep we all have that same perspective we're not trying to pinch you for a nickel right we want you to be happy inside of being a customer yeah it, it actually blows me away like I, I like when companies actually do that because it is so rare that you automatically feel like you're getting screwed right and nobody gets mad if their Amazon order shows up early or somebody credits their account or gives them a free month or cuts their monthly fee by even a dollar. Like nobody gets mad at that stuff, but they might call in and question it because it's uncomfortable because it doesn't happen that well or that often, sorry. But once they understand what happened and that you're actually not screwing them and actually you're giving them some sort of benefit, whether it's financial or more features or whatever it is, they are so much more loyal to you, at least in my experience, and the chances of them actually going to one of your competitors goes down astronomically. Do you agree with that, or what are your thoughts around that? that yeah, that's absolutely the case. I mean, uh, Sengrid, our pricing was almost three times as expensive as Amazon. Wow. And Amazon has a you know, low-cost, reliable service. Why didn't everyone switch? Sure. You know, economically, you'd say, that's a good question, right? <laughs> sure. But the... the the, the vibe Sengrid put out in the world was like, hey, you know, happy to see you, want to give you a hug, you know, want to buy you a beer, and here's a blue T-shirt. And the vibe Amazon put out into the developer community was watch out, right? Because yeah. if you tell us your secrets, we will steal your idea and put it out in the marketplace in six months at one-third the cost, which yeah. is exactly what they did to Isaac, the founder of Sengrid. Because he told them what he was doing, and they just ripped it off. And so, you know, with Amazon, it's like, hold on to your wallet, and there's no support. You know, it's public support. You have to support each other. And we embraced the Rackspace uh, perspective of support, which was, you know, just overdue support, really lean into it. And so we did phone, chat, and email, global 
which was expensive. And he, but huge, though. Huge. So when your infrastructure goes down, yeah. it means something's going well in your business. It's getting used. Yeah. And when it, then when it breaks, you're in a panic. And when yeah. you can talk to someone who can fix it in five minutes, then that yeah that solved a lot of a lot of problems. Uh, yeah, quick quick story on so to make makes your point is that uh, when we changed the uh, changed the building we changed the building systems and we had sort of optimize it for people and then we had like silver gold and platinum plans okay and if you were on a silver plan and you and you sent too much mail you would have been better off on a gold plan which is you know more expensive but you would lower your bill right but you would have you know bought more in bulk right and so we wrote some algorithms that would optimize which plan people are on to, to minimize their bill and we think we rolled it out for some segment of our customers <laughs> and they hated it, right? Because while we were, in fact, lowering their bill, you know, the optics of moving them to gold without them like opting into it or whatever, ah. because you get to do it you know, at the end of the month. Like, oh, wow, you spent a lot more than you thought. We'll put you on the gold plan to lower your bill. And they're like, fuck, I don't want that. So we're like, okay, we'll unwind that one. We'll let people you know, pay us inefficiently and maximize our revenue. Uh, but we tried. You know? And, of course, uh, we would do things like uh, developers sometimes will have a, a script go wrong, and instead of sending 100,000 emails, they'll send 100 million. Okay. And so their bill, instead of being $50, is like 5000 And uh, we got uh, you know, one bite at the apple, right? If you had a bill like that, uh, a front-level support rep could you know, waive that just on their own accord. Which we understand what's going on. We don't want to make a business off of people's errors, right? That's that's no good. Uh, and so people love that. Right? Imagine if you know, you had AT and T or something, and you you know, used too many you know out of network minutes on an international call back to when that was the thing. You know, it's yeah. like you get a bill for eight hundred bucks instead of eighty, right? They don't waive it. Uh, you're paying it, but yeah, you know, we yeah we had no variable cost in delivery anyway, so it was easy to just wave it and people were very appreciative but if you came back every month saying well that five million cent wasn't real you know we get a little suspicious sure no interesting I, yeah I, I think like siding with your your customer when they make a, a mistake you'd be surprised i'm surprised at how many companies don't actually do that it seems like companies are getting better at it but i'm still shocked by how many companies are just like Sorry, you're, you're screw up, not our fault. And you're just like, really? Like, there's a lot of competition well, think, for most companies now, right? I think scaling is hard. You know, you, you scale up a big business. Think of Wells Fargo, or these big businesses, or, sure. or you know, Oracle type business. Here, you know, Twilio type business, where you have you know, support teams or customer success or whatever this is, you know, or billing disputes department. You're going to have frontline workers and you're going to have like a frontline manager, right? And they're going to have, you know, quotas and stuff to hit. And, you know, whose job is it to reduce revenue, right? Like, yeah, there. And so when you call into the company, you're not talking to CEO or founder, right? You're talking to, you know, an individual employee, and that person's got to deal with their boss, that frontline manager. And if you had an error, which, you know, racked up your bill, that just means, you know, their quota is, get, you know, getting relieved because of your error. And so if they waive that, you know, they don't get any, you know, help. You know, it's just, I think that's where it gets tricky. And if you're ever selling, like really thinking about, you know, how does that frontline manager, um, how does that fit into your sales equation? Uh, because, you know, what are their motivations, et cetera, uh, may be different than what you're thinking at an executive level uh, trying to do things. This just seems like a, a case in point. Uh, sure. we've, we've got all kinds of stories. We really decentralized. Our 4-H is a, 
on honesty is a lot of trust embedded that first H and it's uh, delegation. So we would put a lot of power into that, uh, into our support reps. And so they could fix problems uh, very quickly. Uh, so they had powerful tools that we custom built uh, that they could search and find whatever's wrong with that email and get that email flowing. And so it generated tremendous goodwill. And when you called in and you talked to a smart person with the right tools to fix your problem, that's terrific. And I'll, I'll give you the punchline. <laughs> There's a downside to that, right? Okay. If you give someone that much power, you know, yeah. why do big companies not do that, right? Because that power can be used uh, for ill as well as for good. Sure. And uh, we had a support rep who was well-intentioned, but they got socially engineered. And so, you know, uh-huh. someone called up and said, geez, I lost my wallet. My dog died. My girlfriend ran over my truck whatever the story was, and I need you to change my root password. (laughs) And our rep did. And guess what, right? It was fraud. It wasn't his account. And so the true account owner finds out that Sangrid changed the password, you know, puts something on Reddit or Quora or someplace, and it starts to trend. And the title was, you know, don't trust Sangrid. And I was just like, oh, shit. Because trust is what our number one asset was with developers. And... We had a support came to me, and he's like, Jim, <laughs> we have a problem, right? And I'm like, I don't even want to know the rep's name because it's not relevant. Right? What this person did is exactly what we told him to do, right, which is to fix people's problems using the tools at hand. And, and we have benefited from that rep's work, you know, as long as they've been here, creating all this goodwill. And so we had to figure out a way to preserve the empowerment of the rep or really any frontline employee uh, but not taking, you know, huge corporate <laughs> risk. And the sport team came up with their own solution, uh, which is sort of like a buddy system. Uh, these are sitting, you know, shoulder to shoulder, you know, pre-COVID. Uh, and, and when you uh, had certain things happen, you know, sort of like the signaling for a social uh, hack, or before you did certain things like change the root password, you had to tap someone on the shoulder next to you and say, hey, man, or lady, like um, what, you know, here's what's going on. You know, what do you think? And that second set of fresh eyes that having yeah. been pulled into the story was enough of a check uh, to make sure it didn't happen again. Uh, and those reps, you know, kept the same amount of power and kept solving problems for customers. My experience at Oracle was like just the opposite, right? If you're, you know, if you're a maintenance rep, you know, you have very limited ability <laughs> sure. to do anything, right? It's just the first question you have to ask is what's your maintenance contract number? which is a billing question. It's like, have you paid for support? And so one of our policies at Sangrid, which is somewhat controversial, uh, is you did not have to pay for support. Okay. Uh, anyone on the planet can call our 800 number, or could call our 800 number, uh, or email us, and we will fix your email deliverability problem regardless if you use Sangrid or not. If you oh, use Amazon, if you've built your own stuff, if you use one of the little guys, like, we don't care. What we care about is making the mail flow. Our mission was super simple. Make the mail flow. If you do that, good stuff happens. If mail's not flowing, that's bad stuff. We don't want that. So really, really clear. And so as a support person, you'd never ask about like, are you a paying standard customer? It's just like, you know, what's going on? How can we fix this? And generally these problems are pretty easy to fix. And so we could just redirect a few things. And, uh, and that is essentially like a sales team because the person right. on that phone call is like, boy, you people seem good at this. <laughs> like, yeah, that's kind of what we do. <laughs> like, and it's really cheap, right? And you don't, you know, free to start and all that stuff. And so uh, don't ever tell our support people they were salespeople, but, you know, 
Our support people were salespeople. Really, our customers were our salespeople. Because they would tell other potential customers, like, hey, why are you messing with email? You should just let SendGrid do it. I mean, you have enough things to worry about building cloud apps that email is just not something you should worry about. No, I... So, yeah, that, that was a policy that kind of wraps a lot of this 4-H thinking and culture and management process uh, around and really created a very powerful and loyal base uh, that wouldn't switch. If a, if a small competitor had a feature we didn't have or Amazon was cheaper than us, uh, no one could replicate our, our feel, right, how people felt in, in, in dealing with SendGrid. No, I, I think that's actually really good advice. But sadly, Jim, we're coming to the end of the show. So how about we close with mentioning where people can get more information about yourself and uh, anything else you want to mention? Well, uh, I'm very active on LinkedIn since it was first a thing. Uh, another, another story there, say for a different day. <laughs> uh, uh, LinkedIn.com slash n slash Jim Franklin 08. Uh, and also Twitter is just at Jim Franklin. Uh, and really Twitter is where I uh, post and talk about sort of VC and funding things. Uh, I'll be teaching a class on venture capital this fall uh, using the hashtag uh, CUVC2020 uh, to sort of pull together thoughts and uh, commentary around uh, the fundraising and this, the startup, uh, startup and founders uh, journey uh, and life. Perfect, Jim. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be on the show, and I look forward to keeping in touch with you, and have a good rest of your day. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at buildingthefutureshow.com to join the free community, sign up for our newsletter, or to sponsor the show. The music is done by Electric Mantra. You can check him out at electricmantra.com and keep building the future.